Chapter Seven of Shorty McCabe by Sewell Ford. This LibriVox recording's in the public domain. No, I ain't going out to Blenmont these days. Jarvis does his exercising here, and he says his mother's having a ballroom made out of that gym. I've been sticking to the pavements like I said I would, looking cheerful too. Why not? If you'd been a minute sooner, you'd heard me wobbling. Please, ma'am, nail a rose on me. But say. I'll give you the tale, and then maybe you can write your own ticket. You see, I'd left Swifty Joe running the physical culture studio, and I was doing a lap up the sunny side of the avenue just to give my holiday regalia an airing. I wasn't thinking a stroke, only just breathing deep and feeling glad I was right there and nowhere else. You know how the avenue's likely to go to your head these spring days? with the carriage folks swamping the traffic squad, and everybody that's anybody right on the spot or hurrying to get there, and every one of em as fit and finished as so many prize winners at a fair. Well, I wasn't looking for anything to come my way, when all of a sudden I sees a goggle-capped tiger throw open the door of one of them plate-glass benzene brooms at the curb, and bend over like he has a pain under his vest. I was just sidestepping to make room for some upholstered old battle-axe that I supposed owned the rig, when I feels a hand on my elbow and hears someone say, Why, Shorty McCabe, is that you? She was a dream, all right. One of your princess-cut girls, with the kind of clothes on that would make a turkey-red checkbook turn pale. But you couldn't fool me, even if she had put a Marcel crimp in that carroty hair of hers and washed off the freckles and biscuit flour. You can't change Irish blue eyes, can you? And when you've come to know a voice that's got a range from maple sugar to mixed pickles, you don't forget it either. Know her? Say, I was brought up next door to Sullivan's boarding house. You didn't take me for King Eddie, did you, Miss Sullivan? says I. I might buy the clothes, says she, running her eyes over me. Only I see you've got em beat by a mile. But why the Miss Sullivan? because I've mislaid your wedding card, and there's been other things on my mind than you since our last reunion, says I. But I'm charmed to meet you again, ruly, and I begins to edge off. You act it, says she. You look tickled to death, almost, but I'm pleased enough for two. Anyway, I'm in need of a man about your weight to take a ride with me, so step lively, shorty, and don't stand there scaring the trade away from the silver shop. Come, jump in. Not me, says I. I never butts into places where there's apt to be a hubby task who's who and what's what. But there isn't any hubby now, says she. North Dakota them, says I. No, says she. I've got a decree good in any state. His friends called it a heart failure. I can't because I used to settle his bar bills. You're not shy of widows, are you? Now say, there's widows and widows. Grass baled hay, and other kinds, and most of them I passes up on general principles, along with chorus girls and lady demonstrators, but somehow I couldn't seem to place Sadie Sullivan in that line. Why, her mother and mine used to borrow cupfuls of flour of each other over the back fence, and it was to lick a feller who yelled bricktop after Sadie that started me to taking my first boxing lessons in Mike Quigley's barn. I ain't much used to travelin' in one of these rubber-tired show-windows, says I. But for the sake of old times, I'll chance it once. And with that I climbs in. The tiger puts on the time-lock, and we joins the procession. 
Your car's all to the giddy, I remarks. Didn't it leave you some short of breath after blowing yourself to this, Sadie? I buy it by the month, says she, including James and Henri in front. It comes higher that way, but who cares? Oh, says I, he left a barrel then. A cellarful, says Sadie. And on the way up towards the park, I gets a scenario of the axe I'd missed. His name was Dipworthy. You've seen it on the labels. Dipworthy's drowsy drops. Youngsters yearn for him. Only he was Dipworthy Jr., and knew as little about the drop business as only sons usually do about such things. Drops wasn't his long suit. Quartz came nearer being his size. It was while he was having a sober spell that he married Sadie. But that was about the last one he ever had. She stuck to him, though. Let him chase her with guns and hammer her with the furniture, until the purple monkeys got him for good and all. Then she cashed in the drop business, settled a life insurance president's salary on her mother, bought a string of running ponies for the kid brother, and then hit New York, with the notion that here was where you could get anything you had the price to pay for. But I made a wrong guess, Shorty, says she. It isn't all in having the money. It's knowing how to make it get you the things you want. There's plenty would like to give you lessons in that, says I. You, says she. Say, do I look like a con man, says I. There, there, Shorty, says she. I knew better, only I've been gold brick so much lately that I'd almost suspect my own grandmother. I've got two maids who steal my dresses and rings, a lady companion who nags me about the way I talk, and who hates me alive because I can afford to hire her. And even the hotel manager makes me pay double rates because I look too young for a real widder. Do you know, there are times when I almost miss the late Dippy. Were you ever real lonesome, Shorty? Once or twice, says I, when I was far from Broadway. That's nothing, says she, to being lonesome on Broadway. And I've been so lonesome in a theater box with two thousand people in plain sight that I've dropped tears down on the trombone player in the orchestra. And I was lonesome just now when I picked you up back there. I had been into that big jewelry store buying things I didn't want, just for the sake of having someone to talk to. Ah, say, says I, cut it into smaller chunks, Sadie. I'm no pelican. You don't believe me, says she? I know this little old boy too well, says I. Why, with the hundred-dollar bill, you can buy more society than you could put in the hall. But don't you see, Shorty, says she, that the kind you can buy isn't worth having. You don't buy yours, do you? And I don't want to buy mine. I want to swap even. I'm not a freak, nor a foreigner, nor a quarantine suspect. Look at all these women going past. What's the difference between us? But they are not lonesome, I'll bet. They have friends and dear enemies by the hundreds, while I haven't either. There isn't a single home on this whole island where I can step up and ring the front doorbell. I feel like a tramp hanging to the back of a parlor car. What good does my money do me? Suppose I want to take a dinner at a swell restaurant. I wouldn't know the things to order, and I'd be afraid of the waiters. Think of that, Shorty. I tried to, but it was a strain. If anyone else had put it up to me that Sadie Sullivan, with a roll of real money as big as a bale of cotton, could lose her noive just because she didn't have a visiting list, I'd have told him to drop the pipe. She was giving me straight goods, though. 
why her lip was trembling like a lost kid's. Chuck it, says I, for Goyle that had a whole bunch of Johnnies on the waiting list, and her with only one best dress to her name at the time, you give me an ache. I don't set up for no great judge of form and figure, but my eyesight's still good, I guess, and if I was choosing a likely looker, I'd back you against the field. That makes her grin a little, and she pats my hand kind of sisterly-like. It isn't men I want, you goose. It's women, my own kind, says she, and the next minute she gives me the nudge and whispers. Now watch. The one in the chiffon Panama. Chiff which says i but she sees the one she means a heavyweight person rigged out like a dry goods exhibit and topped off with millinery from the spring opening coming toward us behind a pair of nervous steppers she had her lamps turned our way and i hear sadie give her the time of day as sweet as you please she wasn't more than six feet off either but it missed fire she stared right through sadie as if there'd been windows in her and then toying to cuddle a brindle pup on the seat beside her. Acts like she owed you money, says I. We swapped tales of domestic woe for two weeks at Colorado spring season before last, said Sadie, but it seems that she's forgotten. That's Mrs. Morris Pettigrew, whose husband. That one, says I. Why, she ain't such a much either. I know folks that think she's a joke. She feels that she can't afford to recognize me on Fifth Avenue just the same, that's where I stand, said Sadie. It's a crooked deal, then, says I. And right there I began to get a glimmer of the kind of game she was up against. Talk about freeze-outs. I'll show her, though, and the rest of them, says Sadie, sticking out her cute little chin. I'm not going to quit yet. Good for you, says I. It's a pastime I ain't up in at all. But if you can ever find use for me behind the scenes anywhere, just call on. I will, Shorty, says she, and right now, come on down to Sherry's with me for luncheon. Quit your kiddin', says I. You don't want to queer the whole program at the start. I'd be lost in a place like that. Me in a sack suit and round-top dicer. Why, the head waited say scat, and I'd make a dive under the table. She said she didn't care a red apple for that. She wanted to sail in there and throw a bluff, only she couldn't go alone and she guessed I'd do just as I was. Course, I couldn't stand for no fool play of that kind. But seeing as she was so dead set on the place, I said we'd make it at eleven o'clock supper after the theater. But it must be my blow. I've got the clothes that'll fit into a night racket, says I. And besides, I've got to get a few points first. It's a go, says she. So we made a date, and Sadie drops me at the studio. I goes right into the phone and calls up Pinkney at the club. Didn't I tell you about him? Sure, that's the one. You wouldn't think, though, to see him and me tapping each other with the mitts that he was a front-ranker in the smart push. But he's all that. He's a pacemaker for the swiftest bunch in the world. Say, if he should take to walking on his hands, there wouldn't be no men's shoes sold on Fifth Avenue for a year. Well, he shows up here about an hour later, looking as fresh as though he'd come off the farm. Did you say something about wanting advice, Shorty? says he. I did, says I. Religious or otherwise, says he. But it makes no difference. I'm yours to command. I don't ask you to go beyond your depth, says I. It's just a case of order and fancy grub. I'm due to blow a lady friend of mine to the swellest kind of supper that grows in the borough. No two-dollar table, do understand? 
but special, real lace, eighteen-carat feed, with nothing on the bill of fare that ain't spelled in French. Ah, says he, something like the Barquettes, Bordelais, Poulette, and Casserole phrases au champagne and so on, eh? I was about to mention them very things, says I, but my memory's on the blink. Couldn't you write them down with a diagram of how they look and whether you spear them with a fork or take them in through a straw? Why, to be sure, says he. So he did, and it looks something like this. Consomme au fumé d'estagaron. Chicken soup, big spoon. Barguettes bordelaise. Marrow on toast with mushrooms, fork only. Fonds d'artichotes monogosque. Hearts of artichokes and cream sauce. Fork and breadsticks. There was a lot more to it, and it wound up with some kind of cheese with a name that sounded like breaking a pane of glass. I threw up my hands at that. It's no go, says I. I couldn't loin to say all that in a month. How would it do for me to slip the weight of that program and tell him to follow copy? We'll do better than that, says Pinkney. Where's your phone? Pretty soon he gets someone on the wire that he calls Felix, and they has a heart-to-heart talk in French for about ten minutes. It's all arranged, says he. You ought to hand my card to the man at the door as you go in, and Felix will do the rest. Eleven-fifteen is the hour. But I'm surprised at you, Shorty. A lady, eh? Ah, well, in the spring the young man's fancy gently turns. Ah, say, says I, there ain't no call for any funny cracks about this. You know me, and you can guess I'm no willy boy. When I get a soft spot in my head and try to win a queen... It'll be done on the dead quiet, and you won't hear no call for help. But this is a different proposition. This is a real lady who's been locked out of the society trust, and who takes an invite from me just because we happened to know each other when we was kids. Oh, ho, says Pinckney, snapping them black eyes the way he does when he gets real waked up. That sounds quite romantic. It ain't, says I. It's just as regular as taking your rant to a sacred concert. He seemed to want to know the details, though, so I told him all about Sadie and how she'd been ruled out of her class by a lot of stiffs who want one to sixteen with her, either for looks or lucre. And it's a crooked decision, says I. Maybe Sadie wasn't brought up by a Swedish maid and a French governess from Chelsea, Massachusetts, but she's on the velvet now, and she's a real hand-picked pippin, too. What more... She's a nice little lady with nothing behind her that you couldn't print in a Sunday school weekly. All she aims to do is to travel with the money burners and be sociable. And say, that's natural, ain't it? It's quite human, says Pinkney. And what you've told me about her is very interesting. I hope the little supper goes off all right. Ta-ta, shorty. Well, it begins frosty enough, for when it came to piloting a lady into that swell mob... I had the worst case of stage fright you ever saw. Say, them waiters is a haughty-looking lot, ain't they? But after we'd found Felix, I'd passed him the ten-spot, and he bowed and scraped and towed us across the room like he thought we held a mortgage on the place. I didn't feel quite so much as if I'd got into the wrong flat. I did have something of a chill when I caught sight of a sheepish-looking cuss in the glass. He looked sort of familiar, and I was wondering what he'd done to be ashamed of, when I sees it was me. Then I squints around at the other guys and say, more than half of them wore the same kind of look. 
It was only the women that seemed right to home. There was only one in sight that didn't have her chin up and her shoulders back and carrying all the dog the law allows. They treated them stiff-necked food-slingers like they was a lot of wooden Indians. You'd see em piling their wraps on one of them lordly gents as if he was a chair. Then they'd plant themselves, spread out their dry goods, peel off their elbow gloves, and proceed to rescue the cherry from the bottom of the glass. And Sadie? Well, say, you thought she'd never had a meal anywhere else in her life. The way she bossed Felix around and sized up the other folks calm as a Chinaman was a caution. And talk! I never had so much rapid-fire conversation passed out of me in a bunch before. Of course, she was just keeping her end up and making believe I was doing my share, too. But it was a mighty good imitation. Every now and then, she'd tear off a laugh so natural I could almost swear I said something funny. Only I knew I hadn't opened my head. As for me, I was busy trying to guess what was under the silver covers that Felix kept bringing in and remembering what Pinckney had said about forks and spoons. Say, I suppose you've been up against one of those little after-the-players-over-suppers that they serve behind the lace curtains on Fifth Avenue, but this was my first offense. Little suppers? Honest now, there was more than I'd want if I hadn't been fed for a week. Generally, I can worry along with three squares a day, and when I do feel like having a bite before I hit the blankets, a Schweitzer Kaza sandwich does me. But this affair had seven acts to it, and every one was a mystery. Why, I didn't know you were such an epicure, says Sadie. Me either, says I, but I'd never let myself loose before. Have some more pooly from the carousel, and help yourself to the... the other thing. Shorty, tell me how you managed it, says she. I've been taking lessons by mail, says I. You're a dear to do it anyway, says she. Just think of the figure I'd cut coming here by my lonesome. It's bad enough at the hotel with only Mrs. Prusett, and I've been wanting to come for weeks. What luck it was finding you today! Say, don't run away with the idea that I'm making a day's work of this, says I. I'm having a little fun out of this myself. There's worse company than you, you know. And I've met a heap of men stupider than Shorty McCabe, says she, giving me the jolly with that sassy grin of hers, and letting go of one of those goigly laughs that sounds as if it had been made on a clarinet. It was just about then that I looks up and finds Pinckney standing on one foot, waiting for a chance to butt in. Why, Professor, this is a pleasure, says he. Hello, says I. Where'd you blow in from? Then I makes him acquainted with Sadie and asks him what it'll be. Oh, he did it well, seemed as surprised as if he hadn't seen me for a year, and begins to get acquainted with Sadie right away. I tried to give her the wink, meaning to put her next to the fact that here was where she ought to come out strong on the broad A's and throw in the dauncher nose frequent. But it was a no-go. She didn't care a rap. She talked just as she would to me, asked Pinckney all sorts of fool questions, and inside of two minutes them two was carrying on like a couple of kids. I'm a rank outsider here, you know, says she, and if it hadn't been for Shorty, I'd never got in at all. Oh, sure, Shorty and I are old chums. We used to slide down the same cellar door. Selp me, I was plumb ashamed of Sadie then, giving herself away like that. But Pinckney seemed to think it was great sport. Pretty soon he says he's got some friends over at another table, and did she mind if he brought em over? Think you'd better, says she. 
I'm the Mrs. Dipworthy of the Drowsy Drops, you know, and that's a tag that won't come off. If you'll allow me, says he, I'll attend to the tag business. They'll be delighted to meet you. Say, says I, soon as he left, don't be a sieve, Sadie. Just forget old Lang Syne and remember that you're traveling high. They've got to take me for what I am or not at all, says she. Yes, but you ain't got no cue to tell the story of your life, says I. That's my whole stock and trade, Shorty, says she. I was looking for her to revise that notion when I seized the kind of company Pinckney was lugging up to spring on us. I'd seen their pictures in the papers and knew em on sight. And the pair wasn't anything but the top of the bunch. You know the Tombley Cranes, that cut more rice in July than the Knickerbocker Trust does all winter. Why, say, to see the house rubber at em as they came sailin' our way, you'd thought they was paid performers steppin' up to do their act. It was a case of bein' in the limelight for us from that on. Holy chee, says I, here's where I ought to fade. But there wasn't any show to duck, for Felix was chasing over some more chairs, and Pinckney was doing the honors all around, and the first thing I knew we was a nice little family party, chucking repartee across the pink candle shades and behaving like star boarders that had paid in advance. It was Sadie, though, that had the center of the stage, and I'll be staggered if she didn't jump in to make her bluff good. She let out everything that she shouldn't have told, from how she used to wait on table at her mother's boarding house to the way she'd got the frozen face ever since she came to town. But what am I expected to do, says she? I've got no heady green grip on my bank book. There's the whole binful of the drowsy drop dollars, and I'm willing to throw em on the bonfire just as liberal as the next one. Only I want a place around the ring. There's no fun in playing a lone hand, is there? I've been trying to find out what's wrong with me anyway. My dear girl, says Mrs. Twombly Crane, there's nothing wrong with you at all. You're simply delicious, isn't she now, Freddy? And Freddy just grinned. Say, some men is born wise. Professor McCabe and I are exchanging views on the coming lightweight contest, says he. Don't mind us, my dear. Perhaps that's what we were gassing about, or why is a hen? You can search me. I was that rattled with Sadie's noive display that I didn't follow anything else real close. But when it was all over, and I'd been brought to by a peep at the bill the waiter handed me, I couldn't figure out whether she'd made a bull's eye or rung in a false alarm. One thing I did notice as we sails out, and that was the stout pettigrew poison who'd passed Sadie the pickled pig's foot on the avenue that afternoon. She was sitting opposite a skimpy little runt with a bald head at a table up near the door where the waiters juggled soup over her feathers every time they passed. Her eyes were glued on Sadie as we came up, and by the spread of the furrows around her mouth, I see she was trying to crack a smile. Now, thinks I, here's where she collects chilblains and feels the mercury drop. But say, would you look for it in a dream book? What does Sadie do but pass her out the glad hand and coo away, like a powder pigeon on a cornice, but being tickled to see her again? Oh, they get me dizzy, women do. That wasn't a marker, though, to the reverse English carom Sadie takes after we got into a cab and started for her hotel. Was there a jolly for me, or a thank you, shorty, I've had the time of my life? Nothing like it. 
She just slumped into her corner and switched on the boo-hoos like a girl that's been kept after school. Enjoy yourself, Sadie, says I. Only remember that this is a handsome, not a street sprinkler. That didn't affect us, so after a while I tries her again. What went wrong, says I? Was she stringing you, or was it the way I wore my face that queered the show? It's all right, Shorty, says she between weeps. And nothing's wrong, nothing at all. Mrs. What's-her-names asked me to stay a week with her at Newport Place, and old Mrs. Pettigrew will turn green before morning thinking of me, and I've shaken the hoodoo at last. But it all came so much in a lump that I just had to turn on the sprayer. You know how I feel, don't you, Shorty? Sure, says I, just as well as if you'd sent me a picture postal of the place you boarded last. But say, I toined the trick, didn't I? I didn't know what was coming out of the box, of course, and maybe I was some jolted at throwing three sixes to a pair, but there they lay. No, I ain't going into the boosting line as a regular thing, but I guess if any amateur in the business gets a rose nailed on him, I ought to be the gent, not? End of chapter 7